0: Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome, 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 welcome. I'm your host, Neil. This is episode 117 of the Clock Dodgers podcast. If you're new to the Clock Dodgers podcast or fairly new, you're not really familiar with our guest today. Our guest Is Ian McLaughlin. He's a PhD student at Penn uh, for neuroscience. Now, if you've been listening to the Cloud Doctors podcast forever, you are well familiar with Ian and the great conversations that we have and how fun this episode is going to be. If you're not familiar with him, then you need to get familiar. You're about to get really familiar. But beforehand, I know when I listen to podcasts, I always like to look up the guests if I don't know who they are. You know, I'll search them on Twitter or I'll see if they have a podcast or I'll kind of see what they're doing, right? So let me give you Ian's. Uh, Twitter handle, so you could follow him on Twitter, which is underscore anthropoid, A N T H R O P O I D. I tell you that because you're gonna find him very interesting, and he's gonna give you a lot of gems on this episode of knowledge. And you're gonna want to follow him, and maybe you have a question for him. So he's super responsive on there, so you, that's his best place to get him at. Um, so do that. Number one. Number two subscribe to his podcast. He has a podcast called Wired to Be Weird. He does it with his co-host Bo, I believe her name is. Um, And it's well put together. Really, really good stuff. And it's all about neuroscience, obviously, as you can imagine. He talks about the brain, mental health, drug addiction, psychology, all this cool stuff. And it's really well put together, high quality stuff. It's none of that. It's not crappy stuff. It's really good. Um, And so go subscribe to that. So those are the two things I ask you to do for him. As you know, part of the Cloud Edger family, the big thing is we support each other. You support me. I support you. We both support the guest. Um, It's really important to me. It means a lot to me to support the people who give us time to have these conversations, share their life with us, share their insight with us, their opinions with us, whatever it may be. Um, So it means a lot to me when you guys support them like I do, um, because it's just how we move here. Okay, so please do that. And again, you're, you're going to find him, this conversation really interesting and you're going to want to get more content from I'm telling you, or maybe you have a question about something you're dealing with. Um, he, he will definitely help you. He'll definitely give you advice or however he can. Um, so big shout out to that. Again, he's a neuroscientist. He's going to graduate this year. We talk about it a little bit. Um, so you know where the conversation is going. We, 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 I mean, we talk about everything you know to do with the brain, neuroscience, psychology. We get a little bit dark. <laughs> there's some uh crazy conversations we get into we get pretty deep into some things um and a lot of, like 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 many things in science sometimes you can only scratch the surface because it's so deep um that one conversation you can you know you can only go so far so uh again listening to his podcast will give you a lot of information this one if you go back and listen to some of our old episodes a lot of great stuff there um but we one thing before i get into the episode before i play it. Um, we talked about, he had mentioned that he had an injury. And so he hadn't gone to the gym in a while to work out. And then he had just started going back and he forgot how good it made him feel, not just physically, but mentally. Um, And I I, I told him I could relate. I just started going back too, trying to get in better shape here. And um, it does the same thing for me. It does the same thing for everybody. Um, You'll be surprised how much the gym helps you mentally, not just physically. The reason I bring it up though, is I have two funny stories. Well, they're going to be funny to you. They're not funny to me. Uh, and they weren't funny to me because I experienced them and they weren't positive experiences. But the reason I mentioned them today is because we brought up the gym thing and how it helps you, you know, with your mind state. Um, so here's two gym stories that I have that I think if they happened anywhere else would have been, would have gone much further for me, much further left. I would have been a lot more upset, but somehow the release of energy, um, and, and, and whatever it does for your brain, the the, the, the chemicals that it releases, help me deal with it a little bit easier because it was in the gym. The first one, and you're gonna enjoy this, um, I was working out on the machine. And of course, you guys know how it is when you go to the gym, you bring a water with you, or some people bring a whole gallon jug of water, um, your pre-workout, whatever you bring, right? And I have my water and I'm sitting there working out and I in between reps, I go to take a sip of my water and I realize as soon as it hits my mouth, right? I didn't even swallow the, the water yet, um, pause. But when I, when I hit my mouth, I felt it warm. And I was like, wait, my water was cold though. So I look down and I see my bottle of water, you know, sweating because it's cold inside and it's feeling the hot temperature outside. And then I see the bottle of water in my hand and I go, oh, fuck, this isn't my water. This isn't my water. No. Why did somebody leave this water here? Why? So now anyone who knows me well, I freaked out. I ran to the bathroom. I spit the water out. I started rinsing my mouth out. I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna... This person was probably sick. I'm gonna catch a sickness now. I don't know what happened, what's going on here. Was it planted? Oh my God. I feel my throat getting itchy and closing up. Obviously none of that was actually happening, but just the thought of drinking somebody else's water, for some people that does nothing. They don't mind that. I know some people listening right now do not mind sharing food, drinks, whatever with people. It's not my thing, and I'm, I'm certain some people can relate. It's not my thing. So you can imagine I was freaked out by that, right? Anywhere else, I wouldn't let that go. But in the gym, I was like, "Okay, I'm in a good mindset right now. This this is this is a, you know, a, a shitty situation. I'm going to have to act like it didn't happen. I just start I kept working out and by the end of the workout, I forgot it happened." right? Anywhere else, I would have kept going with that. I would have been like, I need a doctor. I need to go Google search right now. What are the effects of this? What is happening to me? So that's one situation. Again, funny to you listening, not funny to me experiencing it. The second one, which was costly, not only not only a bad situation, but costly, was I go to work out on, it was for cardio. So I was going on to the elliptical, I believe it was, um, for a little bit. And there, if you know, I'm sure every machine is different, but a lot of times in the gym they have machines or any machine, I guess, where you could put like a phone or something, you know, sit something down that you don't want to hold, obviously, while you're working out. And I go to put my phone in a slot, and I'm listening to music. I'm going along. And all of a sudden, like the audio started getting weird, like the sound, it started getting like real loud and then cutting out and it was like acting funny. Nothing is the headphones uh, because, you know, sometimes headphones, the wires get loose and things get funny. So I'm like jiggling the, the headphones, trying to get to work and it's still doing it and it's getting worse and worse, like fading out completely. I go to look at my phone. I pull my phone out of the little slot that I had it in and it's soaking wet. Yes. Now, my only hope is that this was water in the hole. I swear I hope it wasn't sweat. The possibility is always there that that was sweat. But to make a long story short, it broke my phone. My phone straight died from the from sitting in this, I, I don't even like saying sweat because it makes me want to throw up. It made me, it, it killed my phone. Right then and there, it killed my phone. And in a normal circumstance, I would flip. I would lose it if I just broke my $700, 800 phone, whatever phone, whatever things cost right now lose all my stuff that's on there, lose everything, right? I work off my phone. I do a lot of stuff off my phone, pictures, all kinds of stuff. Lost it all right there in the spot. But do you know that I continue to work out? I said to myself, my mind told me the only way through this right now, Neil, is to keep going. Act like you didn't bring that phone in here and just keep going. And that's exactly what I did. In a situation which would normally send me off the deep end, I just kept working out and by the time I left that gym, as crazy as it sounds, I wasn't mad anymore. I wasn't mad and I don't know if it was just exerting the energy that I would have used to be mad, if it was clearing my mind somehow and sending me these happy chemicals to my brain. I don't know what it was but when I left there, I wasn't mad anymore. I got some clarity through the workout and that's real. So, These are just two little stories that I have personal stories again that may be funny to you for me drinking somebody else's water or dropping my phone in someone's sweat, whatever it was. But at the time for me, they were serious, serious enough for me to freak out. But the gym workout like pushed me through it and in some weird way, mentally, you know, relaxed me of the situation to make it a little better. Of course, I'm not using for anyone who, who is thinking some stuff right now. Does he still have that phone? Did he get that phone fixed, that sweaty ass phone? No, I did not. I refused to fix that phone because I was never going to put that phone in my ears. I was never going to want to use that phone thinking that was somebody else's sweat. Wasn't going to happen. It <laughs> wasn't going to happen. And um, the water bottle, I did not. Not that I know I'll swallow any of that. Again, pause. But, you know, it just that it was there, man. It was uh, it was nasty threw me off, but the workout pulled me through. All right, guys, those are just two quick stories I wanted to share. Um, before I get to the podcast, don't forget if you're new to this podcast, the greatest thing you can do for me, the most helpful thing you could ever do is just hit subscribe. It means everything to me. You'll get a lot of great content, all for free. We don't you know, charge for anything. Go ahead and do that, it means everything to me. And the other thing is to share it. If you love the conversations you're hearing, and I promise you there's all kinds of conversations, with people from all walks of life. We are, we're all about passion here the niche is passion. If you have passion for anything, this podcast fits you in. You're part of this family if you have passion. Now, if you live a passionless life and you don't have no passion and you just kind of move and mumble and bumble here to there, maybe it's not for you because we exhume mad potential here, mad passion here, excitement, energy, It's all about that. So that's what Cloud Dodgers is about. So please subscribe to the podcast and share it with somebody. It means everything. Or just share it on social media, share it on Facebook, whatever. You'll be surprised how much that helps us. I can't relate into words, but it helps a lot. Um, And again, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, anywhere. It's at Clock Dodgers, real simple. Um, And of course, we have the cloudodgers.com, the website. Uh, we do a lot of different kind of content on there. People write about all kinds of stuff. Uh, more recently, right now, Fancy Football season is about to kick back off. So we got some new guys uh, who are going to start contributing. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, and just overall, guys, I, I, everything is going well. Um, I, I love hearing from you guys. You guys share your lives with me because that's the way we move here. Um, the clock Dodgers brand just kind of exudes that, um, mentality that we're family. And so of course, family shares things with each other. So through Instagram, it's a lot of fun. You guys share a lot of cool stuff there with me Twitter. And I like to retweet it and put it out there and share it with the world. So keep doing that. It's a lot of fun. We're building a lot of positive energy. So enough of this, let's get to the podcast conversation with Ian McLaughlin. Again, he's a PhD student at Penn in neuroscience, you're gonna love this conversation. I love you guys. I'll catch you on the other on the other end. I got an outro for you guys. Um, Just dropping some more, you know, some more, some more stuff we gotta drop. But other than that, guys, I love you. Stay blessed. Let's get to the conversation. Cannot play with Cannot Can go it. Can't do it. I mean, listen, we talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We talking about down
1: goes crazy.
0: Down goes crazy. You are now locked in to the Clock Dodgers podcast. Clock Dodgers podcast. Ian, welcome back to the Clock Dodgers podcast. It's it's been some time since your last visit, so you know, of course, I have a bunch to ask you. But before we do that, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well, thanks, Neil. It's good to be back. <laughs> it is. I, I think you're like the most frequent guest which has a lot. Oh, is that right? You might be. I haven't done the math exactly, so, but I think you are. Well, I'm honored. <laughs> Anything new, man? Anything interesting going on?
2: Not much. I'm trying to wrap up this uh, PhD, hopefully by the end of the year.
0: Um, but beyond that, not much. <laughs> That's, you, you make that sound like a small feat. You're like, i hey, am you know, just, just wrap <laughs> well, up this PhD over here. You know, nothing too much. It's a long time in the making. But <laughs> apart
2: from that, uh, I did just put out a new podcast episode.
0: You did, which I listened to. Oh really? Okay, cool. <laughs> yes, and I want to actually get into that with you. Um, I actually kind of want to start with that, so we'll, we'll start with that. Um, let 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 Yeah, let's start with your podcast first. So you just put out a new episode. You're referring to the marshmallow test, Stanford prison experiment, all that stuff, right? That's right. Okay, perfect. I wanted to ask you first of all: Was there a particular reason why the time in for that episode, or was it just something you just chose to jump into?
2: You know, it, it was a series of articles that I had read um, just sort of in the popular press by people who clearly have interests in psychology and in neuroscience. And basically, it was sort of like there's a lot of idols being crushed, <laughs> like a lot of sort of standard classic experiments were being reevaluated and basically you know, be, being re-evalu- reevaluated through the lens of modern experimental design and more sort of scrupulous experimental design. And as a result, you know, some of these super classic, I mean, most people, I suspect, at least in in America, probably are familiar with the marshmallow test. You know, maybe they've seen videos on Facebook or whatever it might be on YouTube. Um, And so, you know, I just sort of decided, okay, I'm going to read what's out there about these two classic experiments and see, like, how convincing the kind of counter arguments were. And, And I found them pretty convincing.
0: Yeah. So, so let's go into it a little bit then. Can you, I guess we'll start with the marshmallow one. You said you think people are probably more familiar with that one. Can you just kind of give a, a quick explanation of what it is exactly so people can kind of either be reminded or just hear about it for the first time? And you don't have to go into too much detail because I I do want to direct people to the podcast, of course, because obviously the episode has got a whole lot of detail. Um, But just kind of, you know, a brief explanation of what it is.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, so the marshmallow test was a study that was conducted in the 1960s by a guy named Walter Mischel at uh, Stanford University. Um, And, excuse me. And um, so, you know, a, a lot of the articles that evaluate the origins of the study go into like Walter Michel himself, um, and like who he was as a person, and how that kind of related to the theme of self-control, and um, the reason that you know this these um, biographies basically of him were interested in self-control is that the marshmallow test basically is designed so that you put a, a young kid in in a room, like a you know a laboratory condition, and in front of you know around four years old, let's say, and in front of them you put a plate with some kind of treat. Oftentimes it was marshmallows, but not exclusively marshmallows. And they were told by um, the the researchers, "Okay, you can have this treat right now or you can wait some amount of time, half an hour, an hour or so, whatever it might be. And we will double the treat if you don't eat it. So if you wait, if you what we call delay gratification, you'll get double the reward. And so the study and and basically, you know, they they showed the, the the importance of this study was that they showed that the kids that were able to make the kind of maybe the rational calculation of, okay, if I wait just a little bit, I'll get more reward. Right. Those kids, they tended to experience better outcomes in their life. They tended to, you know, uh, make more money. They tended to, you know, uh, achieve sort of more sort of broadly professionally. Um, they also tended to have like better physiological health related outcomes. Um, and so this was, you know, hailed as this kind of amazing insight that, ah, we've discovered something fundamental about human biology that we can test so easily. But since the study came out and, and the guy, you know, the guy became extraordinarily famous. He, still, he is extraordinarily famous. Um, but since that study came out, subsequent studies have basically shown it's not quite that simple.
0: That's interesting because you know when, when, when you when what you just said as far as what he did and everything, it, like for for someone like me who's not trained in any of this, no expertise, it sounds good on the surface. Like it sounds like that's believable. Do you know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so much
2: of this is so intuitive. I mean, I feel like we've all grown up with all of these as sort of like a given.
0: Right. Exactly. Um,
2: yeah, and so and so fairly recently, I think actually maybe the end of last year, maybe actually this year, twenty eighteen. Um, a study was published in uh, Psychological Science by uh, Tyler Watts, Greg Duncan, and, and just you know a couple others. A partnership between NYU, New York University, and UC Irvine. Um, and so, basically, they, they, you know, to sum up a lot of their work, um, they did find that early delay of gratification did correlate with positive scores later on in, in life. In other words, the kids that could stave off the reward until they could get double. Um, but it was a bit more complicated, um, and this was likely due to a couple of things. So um, first, the sample of children in that early study, that you know, 1960 study, they recruited kids from families all of whom had ties to Stanford University, right? And mm-hmm. so Walter Michelle, if you remember, is a, was a professor at Stanford University at the time, right. and you know, so if you're trying to make claims about people, right, about humans. <laughs> You know, not everybody is associated with a family that either teaches at Stanford University or attends Stanford University, you know, not,
0: it's not, just not, it's the, not the best. Not a me. representation
2: of the broader population, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and the initial study was big. It had over 60, 650 kids, right? So that's a lot, that's a huge study for at least when it comes to kids. But then the follow-up studies that measured things like SAT scores or, you know, behavioral studies, the kinds of things that I was talking about, the positive things that were associated with delayed gratification. That that number 650 got whittled down lower and lower. So you know it was a powerful study, but it wasn't optimally designed. And the the subsequent studies that tended you know to sort of color our perspective on what they were what they were measuring uh, were not nearly as as powerful. Um, and so this this more recent study they did find you know some association right that you know being able to delay gratification does track with sort of general achievement later on in life. But the association was significantly less significant. In other words, it just wasn't as strong of a correlation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then beyond that, they found that you know these outcomes were very sensitive to other controls that they included in the study that were not included in the original study. Um, and so you know th- there's a bunch of controls that you know things like uh, parental income, um, you know the amount of attention that that parents give to their kids when you know researchers are around. Um, you know, sort of general educational attainment of parents. You know, just broad characterizations of like, okay, what is the environment right. in which these kids are growing up? Um, and uh, you know, th- there's it, it's very complicated. There's there's a lot of things that they go into, and they they're very rigorous in how they control. But basically, they showed that like, particularly income had a very significant effect. Income of parents, I should say, not the kids, <laughs> <laughs> had a very significant effect on these kids' behavior. And and it you know. There's there's a lot of economics research around this um, that that can perhaps uh, help us to understand why this might be the case, um, and you know I'm sort of tempted maybe to 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 uh, ask you what what might be intuitive to you although I guess you've heard the podcast so yeah. that wouldn't be exactly <laughs> that's for <laughs> the listeners. So, you know <laughs> it's like you know if if kids grow up and their parents don't have a lot of cash to throw around, sometimes parents will say you know if you behave well or you behave good. Um, you're gonna get you know, some kind of treat, but sometimes the parents just economically, they just cannot follow through. Right. And so the kid learns like, okay, sometimes, you know what, a reward, a guaranteed reward right now is probably better than a potential reward later. Right? Makes sense. And so it's sort of a rational calculation that they're making, actually, if you consider the differences. And then, of course, when it comes to the children of very affluent parents, it's like, those parents are probably gonna be able to follow through. Yep. And so it, it was an interesting kind of uh, uh, perspective that pure psychology research, at least of the time, didn't necessarily intuitively integrate into experimental design.
0: So, so let me ask you this then. So, so the, the new studies are kind of again not against, but you know not totally lining up with the original experiment. And you mentioned that he got really famous from that experiment. And still to this day, you said is really famous. What happens to him or someone like him now, though, when these type of studies start challenging? what they say does that change anything as far as how people look at them or definitely yeah okay. so um
2: so what, what's cool about walter michelle you know of course i've never met him um and, and the biography of him makes him sound like an interesting guy um and and to his credit after this study that i was just talking about came out a subsequent study came out with him as a a primary uh, with, with him as a collaborator so this was a study conducted by another group um, headed up by a psychologist named Stephanie Carlson at the University of Minnesota. And she collaborated with Walter Michelle, the, the primary scientist on the original marshmallow test, <laughs> right? Hey, yeah. um, and so th- there's this one fun thing that I like to do when, when I talk about this recent study. So um, they before they did their, like, their you know, um, experiments, they did a survey of 350 adults in the United States. And what they did is they asked these adults to predict whether kids today – would be able to delay gratification you know, in that same marshmallow test format for as long as the kids that Walter Michelle's you know, first initial team in the 1960s measured. So basically, are kids more or less impulsive today than kids in the 1960s? And so before you listened, perhaps, to the podcast <laughs> episode, did you have a, a sort of instinct about that?
0: Yeah, I, I would think that they would be more impulsive now, that they would have even less of a chance of waiting. Totally. Yeah. I mean,
2: both of us. So Bo, my, my co-host, uh, and I both <laughs> kind of expected that. Um, and the adults that they surveyed, the over 350 adults, overwhelmingly predicted that today's kids are more impulsive and be less capable of delaying gratification than kids in the 1960s. But um, then they conducted a second study, right, where they actually did science, right, or let's <laughs> say they did experiments, <laughs> um, where they compare the original data from the 1960s um, to, uh, you know, and these were the, the kids from, from Stanford to another group, um, of kids in the 1980s. And then a third group from, uh, of kids from the, ni- from the 2000s, right? So you got 1960s kids, 1980s kids and 2000s kids. So it's a nice time span, right? Um, and what they found was a, what, what we call a linear effect of birth cohort. So in other words, there was a difference between the kids from the 60s, the 80s and the 2000s. Um, so there's a difference, right? So maybe it's getting they're getting worse. Actually, children in the 1980s were able to delay gratification for 1 minute longer than kids from the 1960s. Wow. And then kids from the 2000s were able to delay gratification for 1 minute longer than the kids from the 80s and therefore 2 minutes longer than the kids from the 1960s. Wow. So
0: they've been getting better. <laughs> and did they did they come to a conclusion or at least or what they thought was the reason for that or were they just as puzzled I <laughs> so, yeah. yeah
2: i mean i think everybody is kind of uh, pretty surprised and they haven't done they uh, you know I, so i've seen interviews of of uh, uh, stephanie and um she's you know she said honestly our hypothesis was the opposite <laughs> and we're trying to figure out you know we're designing experiments now to try and understand what's going on she speculated a bit and you know she said first of all parents um you know, today's parents have access to a lot more just general guidance on like the do's and don'ts of raising a child <laughs> than the nineteen sixties. Um you know, I wasn't around in the nineteen sixties, but but um that seems you know probably to yeah. you know, uh, probably accurate, you know. <laughs> um, and then, you know, she talks about the electronic devices and screen applications that, that I'm sure like all of us are probably pointing to as the culprit for making kids worse. Right. That's what but, I was thinking. Right. And, and but she argues probably these apps. Are giving kids today a lot more practice with things like abstract thought or thinking about, you know, representations of reality and, and representations of the, of the uh, you know, the real world, and that kind of task tracks very well with um, improving executive function skills, cognition, you know, thought processes, and particularly delay of gratification. So it could be that the thing that we think is the problem. Actually, at least in part, might be contributing to kids getting better <laughs> at delaying wow.
0: gratification. Parents wouldn't
2: believe that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. I, I frankly, I find it hard to believe. And you know, I talk about this sort of a something I observed the day after we recorded that, and it was just it sort of blaringly obvious that like there was this kid. You know, we were having a party for a friend of mine who uh, defend who got her PhD, and uh, she had a kid there, like a, a probably three-year-old, four-year-old. You know, could have been in this study. And we were, you know, it's, it's a, a lab party, so we're not getting rowdy. But, you know, <laughs> adults drinking beer and wine and stuff, getting, you know, loud, having loud conversations. The kid is sitting perfectly obediently in a chair with headphones and an iPhone for like four and a half hours. Wow. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, so I don't know, man. I mean, you know, it, it's hard to tell. Uh, but interesting data nonetheless.
0: I've been that kid, Ian. I've been that kid. A game boy or something like that but i also know that party was way crazier than you're leading on to believe but that's okay that's okay (laughs) so all right so like i said i don't whenever i come out you know talk about your episode i don't ever want to give everything away so we'll, we'll, we'll come off the marshmallow test it's interesting obviously i want people to go listen to the episode the other thing you talk about pretty heavily on there is the stanford prison experiment which like you mentioned people are probably less aware of um but again can we give a brief um, you know, idea of what it is exactly to kind of you know a little teaser here for your episode.
2: Yeah, I mean, so so if you're not familiar with the phrase Stanford Prison Experiment, you might be familiar with the kind of interpretations of it because it's been used to explain everything from like uh, why it is that that there is prisoner prisoner abuse by by prison guards or like you know even like you know the um, Abu Ghraib the the torture and prisoner abuse that occurred in Abu Ghraib mm-hmm. during the uh, early stages of the Iraqi Iraq invasion by the United States Army. Um, and even like, you know, there are some philosophers that have referred to it to explain like how the Holocaust could have happened. So, you know, it's, it's one of these landmark studies that, that happened. And, um, and basically it it went like this. Um, so the, the, okay. the the popular perception of the study is there was a group of students, college students again at Stanford (laughs) who, yeah, who were recruited to participate in a study to try and understand the relationship between prisoners and guards. Um, and so without getting into the, what actually happened, the, the popular perception was that these kids were put into a simulated prison, randomly, You know, half of them were assigned to be guards, half of them were assigned to be prisoners, and as the study progressed and had to be cut short, um, the prisoners became very submissive and the, uh, and the prison guards became rather abusive, sort of excessively abusive, and therefore the study had to be cut short because it just went, it spun out of control way more rapidly than anybody, particularly the study uh, uh, um, designers ever uh, expected. Um, and and uh, much like Walter Mischel, although perhaps in a, a slightly different way, the lead um, investigator named, uh, a psychologist named Philip Zimbardo, um, became extraordinarily famous at basically right at the moment that this study was published because there was so much prison-related social unrest at that moment in time that it was like the perfect study to sort of, to rationalize or to, to provide some kind of plot to right. understand why
0: this was all happening. Craziness craziness and i don't want to get too much into it because i want like i said i want people to go hear, listen to your podcast i'm sure everyone listening already listens to your podcast because <laughs> you've been on here like i said and we rave and rave about you but still that episode is really good and of course you know all your episodes are good so let, let's let, let let them go to that one themselves we won't go into it but it's a really interesting podcast and great teaser there ian great job.
2: yeah so so, so suffice it so, to, to suffice it to say that the study wasn't conducted as we all suspected And subsequent interviews And analyses and documentaries Have come out that basically showed That our perception of it is Dramatically skewed to say the least And so, um, yeah, check, check out the, the podcast Some, stan- some I, I Stanford
0: kind of shadiness it. here, man some, some, some <laughs> A little stain on Stanford <laughs> I know, yeah,
2: that's what Beau said She was like, did you just like look for garbage On Stanford yeah, or I was something? like,
0: okay, was like, what's going on here? Some, some, hate, <laughs> some Stanford hate Total chance.
2: <laughs> I, maybe it's just jealousy. I'd
0: love to hear that. There. <laughs> oh man. So listen, this from our conversations and, and from what we've talked about so far, this may be like a really elementary question of me to ask, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, just because I want some clarity. What is actually the difference between like neuroscience and psychology? Is psychology just a part of neuroscience, or like how does that work?
2: No, that's an awesome uh, question. And frankly, you know, different institutions will define those things differently. Like psychology predates neuroscience. Um, it, it's an, it's, it's an, an older discipline. Um, in its earliest stages, it confronted questions that now much of neuroscience also confronts and less of psychology confronts today. Um, so these are things like the fundamentals of why humans behave in the way they do, right? Th- there was no science or, or even medicine that was devoted to, for example, understanding addiction, right? right? Or understanding depression or psych- uh, um, uh, schizophrenia, right? Um, so today – so, so you know, during the, – there, there's a period where they were much v- – very similar. Neuroscience emerged from things like physics, chemistry, biochemistry, um, and, and so on, right? But then also behavioral science became integrated. And so today now neuroscience is a much broader science and psychology is very um, – s- utilizes very sophisticated statistics to still focus on human behavior um, but with much uh, – uh, um, much more comprehensive perspectives, you know, they integrate things like, you know, political science, uh, sociology, Um, you know, um, the, those, you know, economics, right, right. Th- these types of things to, to have a much more, uh, much more thorough understanding of why humans behave in the way they do.
0: So, so, okay, so let me try to get some more clarity. So would someone like you, for instance, you know, trying to get your, get, get well, in your PhD in neuroscience, would you then have any interest in being something in psychology or would that be... Like, would you be in two totally different programs to do that?
2: Yeah, I mean, so sometimes neuroscience uh, uh, programs are a part of a psychology department. Um, Sometimes, you know, um, there is a a subdiscipline within neuroscience called cognitive neuroscience where you are studying humans, but you're using things like an fMRI or, you know, these types of things to try and understand, to try and correlate activity in the brain to specific Things that humans do. So it depends on what kind of questions you're interested in asking. Like, for example, the study that we were talking about, the new marshmallow test study, there almost certainly were zero neuroscientists on that study, but it's cool, right? It's a right, cool. That's study. what I
0: mean. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it, it's just, it, it's frankly, it's probably quite a bit more competitive these days because, you know, it's been around for longer. Um, but, and neuroscience, you know, we're, a lot of people say, you know, we're sort of in a golden age of neuroscience because we have all of these new tools that didn't exist five years ago right? that enable us to ask all these new questions. So, you know, I've devoted my life to neuroscience for a reason, right? <laughs> but, uh, it's not to say that psychology has nothing to offer us anymore.
0: Yeah. I won't lie. When you, when you like, if you even just Google, so, you know, search neuroscience or you go like some new neuroscience news page, it's, it seems like something every day like pops up that's like exciting like oh wow yeah. that sounds like really cool <laughs> like it's, it's become a
2: challenge to keep up man honestly <laughs> like
0: that's a serious challenge that like new
2: graduate students upcoming you know professors have to deal with
0: yes yeah, it's, it's pretty cool so like for instance then something like um common sense or like people who lie a lot and deception and manipulators all that falls under what psychology then
2: well, so, you know, we would study it in different ways. So, like, like a neuroscientist would be interested in trying to understand why it is that somebody lies, or w- let's say, why it is that somebody is a sociopath or a psychopath, mm-hmm. and by correlating it to specific events, specific physical events that occur in the brain, Right. whereas a psychologist might be more interested in what types of things make a, make a psychopath, you know? Gotcha. What kind of childhood, what kind of economics circumstances, you know, is there a certain kind of abuse that causes it? Now, a neuroscientist can also study, okay, what are the effects on the brain of abuse, right? right? And we do that at Penn. Like, for example, you know, children who were, um, you know, severely abused or, or just abused, right? Parental neglect or physical abuse or, you know, these types of things, they're significantly more likely to become addicts. And we can correlate that to specific changes in the brain. So a psychologist would be, would be focused more on, okay, what is the, the nature of the abuse? Whereas the neuroscientist, what happens in the brain that we can then potentially target with
0: medicine? Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. That makes sense. Part of my confusion, and part of my confusion. Man. No, no, not at all, man. Sometimes I'm confused, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, we always hear, man. I always listen. I always hear these things about you know people only using so much of their brain. Imagine if you can use more. Is that is that all that stuff real, or nope, is that it's just totally like fake. it's totally fake, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes so like, I'm like, hey, am I not using it all, man? Is that what's going on? here? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean,
2: you know, let's imagine what that would look like. Like basically, that would mean that there is a a like an empty lot within your brain that's just totally silent. Right. And if you think about it, a brain is a very expensive thing to have, right? We consume tons of food just to keep it at a steady temperature, let Mm -hmm. alone allow the neurons to fire. So if we just had like some empty goo in our brain (laughs) that we were spending all this time focusing on eating and keeping, you know, at a at an even temperature, that'd be an absurd thing. That would be an absurd way to to evolve. So, yeah. um, so no, that's not the case. And, uh, the, the percentage of brain activity is changing every millisecond and it's purely a byproduct of how much of your brain you've learned to use at any given time. And more brain activity does not correlate with better performance,
0: man. Yeah. I, I did just see uh, something about even children, like how much of their in, like food intake and stuff is like used to like feed the brain. It's like some, it's like higher amount or something than I guess when you're an adult, maybe. But so, so like, for instance, then with, okay, you know, people that I'm sure that idea came about because people would say, you know, this person's a genius, you're not, or this person's really smart, you're not. And, or they can think about, understand something that you can't. So what is that then? Is it just a a knowledge-based thing or is there actually something different in the brain that's that person's wired a different way to be capable of that?
2: It's a super interesting topic. I mean, basically we call that expertise, right? Okay. What is the, the physical mechanism of expertise? And so, like, I don't know. Bring up, like, one of uh, – you, 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 your favorite sport is football, right? Yep. Okay. So bring up, like, the, your favorite bo- football player, the best you think, and then a sort of third tier that I've probably never heard of.
0: Okay. So, uh, so are me to name them or – Yeah, yeah. Just, okay, like, two so examples. So, like, Charles Wilson would be, like, one of my favorite players. And then okay. um, someone you probably never heard of would be, like, uh, Gary and Conley. He's in yeah, All Ricky. Right. So he's coming up, But you'll hear about him eventually.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Clock Dodgers living up to his name. Okay, so um yeah, so so what are the differences between these two players? Well, I mean, you know, obviously just to get into the NFL, you have to be pretty gifted, right? right. Um, you know, I don't think anybody would question that, but um, you know, the difference is certainly it, it it has to do a lot with the brain. Of course, you know, when it when it comes to a sport like football, you know, body frame and these t- sort of physics uh play a big role, but let's say two equivalent players, right? The player that is performing better has, for one reason or another, learned to u- utilize his body in a superior way or, or in an optimal way, right? And that has to do with practice and potentially, you know, practice meaning like the brain is learning to minimize the um, extraneous or, or the uh, surplus brain activity that is not involved in performing the task, mm-hmm. right? So just honing in on the minimum amount of brain activity necessary to accomplish the task perfectly. And um, whereas, you know, somebody else, they haven't really, you know, visualized the play as effectively. They haven't gone through the play um, as, as, you know, frequently. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it's, it's more about sort of sculpting down and honing in on the minimal necessary. And that's why oftentimes, or at least there's it's a theory, why oftentimes you'll hear players talk about sort of being in the zone and sort of experiencing a state of flow where... They're just sort of uh, almost like a vessel for performance, and they're not, they're not consciously thinking about these things. It just sort of happens. Right. Um. This yeah. happens in many professions.
0: Yeah, it happens a um, lot too. For like a guy when he's a rookie, and then he becomes like a you know first or second year in the league, he'll say like you know the game is slowed down for me. Obviously, exactly. Know, not literally, but you know in their mind it has.
2: Yeah, and you hear this from like comedians. You hear this from from you know people of, of a variety of different professions. And really, what we're talking about is expertise.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Expertise. I need some of it. Yeah, me too. Brain transplants coming around anytime soon, Ian?
2: <laughs> well, we thought it was going to happen at the end of last year. Did we? Yeah, so did you hear about that story? So there's no. this Italian surgeon named uh, Sergio Canavero. And um, for the past couple of years, he's been saying, I'm going to be the first. He gave, he gave a TED talk, of course. Uh, I'm going to be the first to ever perform a human head transplant. Um, never been successfully done with an organism that survived longer than like 36 hours. So this was quite a claim. <laughs> Nobody expected him to be successful, but then he he formally teamed up with a, um, a team of Chinese uh, surgeons, um, a, a big team, and um, they were successful last year in transplanting human heads between cadavers. And so that's a bit of a disappointment because, of course, if I'm going to have my head transplanted, I don't care if it happens and I'm a cadaver. Exactly. Right? <laughs> I want to survive. <laughs> And uh, he said, he literally said, we're gonna we're gonna do this before the close of twenty seventeen, and alas, no head transplant has hit the press. So, uh, (laughs) so uh, the people who are surprised are exactly nobody.
0: (laughs) Exactly. But hey, there's a chance. You're saying there's a chance, Ian. Yeah, there is a chance. Totally. Listen, it's in a lot of movies and TV shows, man. Now we just need to make it reality i totally, see it and yeah. i'm like you get excited about it yeah. you're like hey man what if this happens man what if this happens i can't help but think about that kind of stuff when, it, you know.
2: yeah i mean i think everybody was kind of kind of like optimistically skeptical they were like if this happens like <laughs> it'll change everything uh and um so yeah i mean and also also you know to be totally honest like it's not like there's any like the brain the body obey the laws of physics and so given enough knowledge and precision you can manipulate those things to successfully transplant a head it just so happens that there's very complicated physics at play when it comes to the head and the brain so yeah for, we'll for, so,
0: for, for someone like you though who who you know this is like your life you know the, the studying the brain and all that kind of stuff do those type of you know stories or even the movies or the or the, anything like that do they get you do you think you get more excited about that than the regular person does because you understand more about it or do you think you know you just get equally the same I mean,
2: absolutely. Like, so I think my gateway drug to science was science fiction. Um, like, I remember, you know, I started reading science fiction when I was really young. And, uh, you know, early in high school, I started reading Dune. Uh, the, I don't know. The, the fairly. If you're a science fiction dork, you're probably familiar with, with Dune. It's a right. big, I guess they call it a space opera. I don't really know what it's called. It's a big series. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you suspend your dis- your disbelief when you're watching science fiction. Like, you know. People oftentimes, uh, neuroscientists will like really hate on movies like Lucy or, um, you know, Ghost in the Shell or, uh, you know, uh, what is it, Limitless. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, there's a good reason. Like they they made some pretty simple errors that could have very very easily been, you know, corrected by even like a, a college graduate in in neuroscience or psychology. <laughs> um, but you know, okay, so. Fine. They're not neuroscientists. They are artists, right? They're telling a story. And usually the story isn't like, oh, it'd be so cool if we could just like be geniuses. Usually they're trying to k- communicate a message of some sort, right? Um, usually social criticism or, or something like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I totally dig it. You know, they didn't have to say we only use 10% of our brain. And so if you take this pill, you can use 100%. <laughs>
0: right.
2: Not have seizures. <laughs> yeah. Like they didn't have to do that. But, you know, still the, the idea is cool, you know, yeah, <laughs> and it's definitely. totally possible, you know.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I just figured you probably would nitpick at it and stuff, you know, like, oh, that's
2: not true. Yeah, like Neil (laughs) deGrasse Tyson when, like, (laughs) science fiction comes out, he's like, this is why it's
0: wrong. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He always does that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, So I know it's, like, a a highly debated topic and within your field, obviously, you know, also, you know, when you do the um, periscopes, a lot of people ask you about it, but what are your thoughts on free will, man?
2: Oh, wow. I wanted to go there. I had
0: to go there with you.
2: Just have to spring this on me. Just
0: spring it on you.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, that, that's a very deep topic. I haven't even covered that on the podcast because it it's a fairly controversial topic, right? It is. <laughs> um, and, you know, okay, so, man, yeah, it's it's funny that you bring this up now because, like, there's some papers that have come out. There was a paper that came out, oh, what was it, like, like a month ago. Um, and it wasn't a research paper. It was essentially an evaluation of some of the early studies that were – that are referred to when people make the argument that free will does not exist, or at least the popular conception of free will doesn't exist. So these are studies con- conducted by a scientist by the last name of uh, LeBay. Um, and basically he showed, uh, so he could predict certain movements by measuring, just using EEG, so just you know, um, gluing basically some electrodes to somebody's scalp, he could predict when somebody was gonna move before they moved. So in other words, he knew before they knew, right? right? Meaning, okay, so if you're you're not consciously aware of a choice that you've already made, you know, then how could free will possibly be real? Right. Um, And so, okay, like, and that for, for a very long time, that sort of sculpted the opinion of much of neuroscience. And I think these days, probably the majority would probably say the popular conception of free will, meaning any choice that you make is completely unfettered by any other influence, any, you know, every choice you make is free in the moment. Um, probably most neuroscientists would say that's probably not how it works. Um, but, uh, you know, a recent evaluation of those early studies basically showed, uh, it, you know, they probably weren't as the, the statistical outcomes of those studies probably weren't as strong as we all suspect they were. Um, but in my mind, okay, so stipulating that, um, and you know, I haven't given this a, a thorough enough treatment right. myself. So, you know, I'm put just sort of spot col- here,
0: Ian. put you in the spot, it- clocked out your stuff.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of like talking off the cuff here, but like
0: in my mind, it are doesn't freely really matter. Talking you know, off the
2: cuff, that's the question.
0: What's that? Are you freely talking off the cuff here? or <laughs> Exactly. Like- <laughs> right. Yeah. And
2: so, yeah, exactly. So like, um, in my mind, it doesn't matter.
0: Like the, these little
2: things, let, let, we can talk about this philosophically. We actually don't need a very specific neuroscientific explanation for there is or there is not free will. I think that if you evaluate the concept of free will in the context of what we understand about genetics and you know brain architecture that basically causes or at least largely determines everything you do. Um, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Now, some people might say, okay, we have, that's true, right? You know, you you inherit your genes from your parents. You have no choice in that, of course. Your parents live in a certain circumstance in a certain part of the world. You have no choice in that before you're born, of course. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that determine, you know, everything from your favorite food to your susceptibility to alcoholism and, you know, um, opioid addiction, Right. right? And so, you know, given all of those things, Certainly, complete and utter free will can't exist. You're restricted in some ways. Mm-hmm. So some neuroscientists, I think, would sort of uh, take the half measure of saying, "Okay, maybe we have something like kind of free will." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> in my mind, it's like, no, you either have it or you don't. Right. And um, I think, it, and frankly, you know, I've I've at least thus far been convinced by the argument that f- what we feel we feel like we have free will. And that was probably important to us as we were evolving, and it's a very beautiful and convincing illusion. And it is an illusion, but um, it doesn't. The fact that it is, or the the possibility that it is an illusion, doesn't really change your day-to-day life. But it does potentially have ramifications for things like criminal law. Right? Um, Like, how do we deal with somebody who, for example, has sold methamphetamine to tons of people and is addicted to methamphetamine? Right. Do we just punish that person because they deserve punishment or do we, you know, understand their behavior and make the priority rather than retribution, which is how our criminal law system is largely based on retribution, they deserve punishment. Mm -hmm. First is minimizing societal harm, right? If our goal is to prevent that person from harming other people, including him or herself, then maybe just punishing that person isn't actually going to get us there. Perhaps it might even exacerbate the problem and you know he wasn't even culpable or he or she wasn't even culpable to begin with right because he wasn't actually free to make all those choices so yeah it's, it's fraught deep. uh i'm not convinced that we have free will wow <laughs>
0: dropping bombs i'm gonna that's <laughs> definitely gonna be cut up and put out there on the internet no <laughs> uh, yeah, <right>. just kidding. <laughs> no seriously that's it's, it's an interesting topic and hopefully you do an episode on it maybe go get crazy it's intimidating dude <laughs> maybe you get crazy maybe a couple episodes out of it but um Listen, man, I, w- w- when it comes to the brain, man, I'm always like just Googling random facts and stuff. I don't even know where I'm getting my knowledge from. But like um, from someone, you know, I obviously I do the podcast and I do a lot of stuff on the side outside of regular work. And, you know, when you do that kind of stuff, you don't get a lot of sleep sometimes. How much damage am I doing here? And I've heard some things, man, that scare me. I, 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 yeah, I've uh, i heard some guests on some podcasts and they, and they worry me a little bit about lack of sleep.
2: i mean honestly you know that's the kind of thing that i mean i know when i was growing up you know a lot of people would brag about how little sleep they got um some people would even just like pretend like they had insomnia for some reason like when you're
0: young that's like that's like a a credit to you right you're like you mashed it up all night yeah and i don't really know what it
2: was supposed to mean like i'm a party animal or i'm like working my ass (laughs) like i'm not quite sure what the point of that was, but it definitely was the case. Like everybody pretended like they had insomnia and then, you know, we would spend the night at each other's houses and it's like, no dude, you slept all night. Yeah. Who
0: stays with the latest? Let's see who can stay up the latest.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's it's just like so weird. I don't, I don't, I'd be interested to know if that happens outside of the United States.
0: Um, (laughs) Yeah. I'd be (laughs) interested.
2: Yeah. um, But okay. So, um, you know, somewhat recently, I don't know quite how recent, um, but you know, recent in the scope of neuroscience it's been basically shown that, uh, you know, sleep is not just like a, it would be nice to have type of thing. It's basically like a, it's a need to have type of thing. Um, a lot of physiological cycles um, occur almost exclusively for, you know, for all intents and purposes, exclusively while we sleep. Um, and there's a bunch, you know, okay, so you and I are, are both male. And so uh, we have higher levels of testosterone than than females, right? Mm-hmm. And testosterone is important for a variety of things for males, um, Everything from libido to metabolism to um, balding, which is very important. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you actually never have higher levels of testosterone unless you inject it, of course. You never have higher levels of testosterone than when you're asleep. Um, wow. And so if you are suffering from a lack of sleep and let's say you're trying to build muscle or you're just trying to keep fit um, – You're going to be at a significant disadvantage if you're at at sleep deprivation. Now, that's just one thing, right, when it comes to, like, sports-related stuff. That's, you know, I'm on the Clock Dodgers podcast. That's where I start, right? (laughs) right. (laughs) But when it comes to things like dementia, you know, cognitive health as we get older, it's basically been fairly, you know, pretty strongly demonstrated that a chronic deficit of sleep is associated with everything from, you know, exacerbated dementia or uh, uh, um, expedited dementia. In other words, symptoms come on more rapidly and more aggressively. But also to things like metabolic disorders, um, increased risks for you know psychiatric illnesses. Just like you know, name a thing, and it seems like too little sleep makes it worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, I don't sleep enough. Um, I've always been really bad at sleeping, but it's the kind of thing where it's like I seriously think like okay got to get x number of hours sleep today and i'm going to sacrifice something tomorrow to make sure i get it
0: yeah that's a, that's what the point i'm at i there's podcasts kind of i'm like okay i can't listen to this this is depressing <laughs> i gotta turn this off and just uh you know it's like you gotta literally you know people focus you know they take time out for the gym or they take time out to prepare their healthy food it's like you don't have to take out time to prepare to sleep right man
2: totally man yeah i mean one of the studies that's regularly pointed to that was recently conducted was actually conducted by a friend of mine uh we were tas together um at at a uh, university of pennsylvania and he basically he it's one of those studies that's really beautiful because there's pictures that beautiful pictures that really demonstrate the point point. and so one thing that happens while we're sleeping is this system kicks into to gear called the glymphatic system it's sort of like you know, power washes, all the gunk that builds up throughout the day, what we call metabolic byproducts of neurons doing their thing, right? During Mm -hmm. the day, it sort of builds up between neurons. And then there is this system that comes in, sweeps it out. Now, that system is active to a certain degree while we're awake. But when we're asleep, it's way more active. And so what he did is he injected a bit of dye into the brain, a harmless dye, into the brains of of some um, animal models. And basically, he showed that while if an animal is somewhat deprived of sleep right not like entirely but somewhat deprived of sleep there was far more dye that was left over than animals that were just you know allowed to sleep normally and it was just sort of like wow so you know literally like this stuff is being cleared more efficiently just because this you know animal got to sleep a little bit more crazy
0: yeah it's crazy man i gotta sleep more this episode is gonna push me over the edge ian (laughs) <laughs> the edge. Now i'm just bouncing around here from things that I, I wanted to ask you also another thing that i've seen um besides the sleep thing with the brain and health of the brain and that kind of stuff is the gut brain connection i know people have asked you about that also on the uh, periscope and stuff like that um can you just kind of give me a quick way of how these two are connected and then i have some follow-up question after that
2: Nah, yeah i mean it, it's really complicated it it like, you know, like a lot of what we've been talking about, it is sort of a nascent or sort of like a newer sub discipline within neuroscience. Um, It basically refers to largely two things. So first of all, we, while we have a central nervous system and a peripheral nervous system, we also have what's called an enteric nervous system. So these are neurons, much like the neurons in your brain. We have 86 billion in the brain. We have a ton that manage the gut, manage our digestion and, and, and influence everything from appetite to how much fat we, we store um, to, you know, nutrient absorption and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's so uh, uh, substantial, this enteric nervous system, that it can actually be active independently of the central nervous system. It, you know, wow. you, it'll just not need any of the rules, you know, uh, put forth by the central nervous system to do what it needs to do. So there's that, plus the fact that it's been shown that the gut is a lot like a coral reef, where, you know, if you look at a coral reef, the reef itself, the physical stuff of the reef, is composed of living organisms, right? They actually build it. But then what's cool about a coral reef, at least in my opinion, is like all the stuff that lives in and on the coral reef, all the fish, all the, you know, anemones, all the cool sort of life that decorates the surface, our gut is kind of like that. We have what's called a microbiome. Where we have ton, actually most of the genetic activity in a human's body is not that of human cells. It's that of the microbes that inhabit the gut. Um, and so all that there are, you know, a myriad of interactions between the central nervous system, the enteric nervous system, and the microbiome. they're being enumerated as you know as we speak. Uh, but suffice it to say that there are definitely relationships. The question is now, the extent of those relationships just how much does the enteric nervous system and the microbiome influence the central
0: nervous system wow so so there's a chance that it affects it more than we ever thought and and that's kind of cool the, the the question i have then with you know we know that you know obviously like you mentioned certain foods you know are going to change how you you know those things affect those things so so is there a possibility that you know, the things that we're putting in our body as far as like, even like probiotics and stuff that are just specifically for you, like your gut and everything that they're affecting the brain somehow too.
2: Yes. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think you'd be probably hard pressed to find a, uh, uh, an active neuroscientist who would say otherwise. Um, you know, th- and th- there's a lot, there are a lot of things that are being explored, um, with regards to that. Um, the, the, the issue is that we're, I don't, th- at least from my perspective, um, There's not enough information to know specific relationships between specific microbes and therefore specific probiotics and good or bad outcomes. So in other words, like, uh, you know, if you have this microbe, you are most, you're almost certainly going to develop, you know, whatever, psychosis or, you know, depression, right? We're not quite there yet, but can the presence of certain microbes theoretically influence your mood? There's a lot of evidence to suggest that they can.
0: That's interesting. And the reason I brought that up too is because like I listened to another podcast called The Fighter and the Kid. It's uh, a comedian Brian Callen, and then a retired UFC fighter, Brendan Schaub. And he not has not- um I forget what the skin issue is where you like break out and like red uh, I can't think of the name of it. Rosacea? Some, yeah, one of those things where it's like itchy and it's all red and you know, whatever. But he's like had like, you know, where it comes and goes, comes and goes. And um he said that recently he's starting to get rid of it and the and the way that he was he was prescribed some kind of like special concoction of like probiotics and stuff. And that is getting rid of the skin issue. So just thought, man, That's how I interesting. I just thought, man. I mean, man if, if something like that can affect that, you know, outside of your body, only if it does affect your brain, imagine, you know, if there is some kind of concoction that can, you know, affect the brain in a, you know, in a, in a big way.
2: I mean, it's it's worth noting that. So when we talk, when usually when people talk about the microbiome, they're talking about the gut microbiome. But it's worth noting that every part of your body has its own microbiome. You know, your hair, your 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 armpits, your, even your eyes, uh, certainly your toenails, (laughs) um, and your, your skin, right? Your face, your face, it probably uh, definitely has a unique distribution of microbes relative to, you know, the skin on your arm, for example. And so, yeah, like certain microbes, for example, can compete with other microbes for nutrients and therefore prevent them from growing. And some of those microbes might cause, you know, infections and irritation that's associated with, um, you know, what, what, um, he was talking about.
0: It's interesting stuff, man. Gosh, man, I can have you on here for hours, Ian. It's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> and this is why I recommend everybody go subscribe to your damn podcast, man. Um, some, some random things before we close this one out. Number one, I seen this online and you know, you can't always trust everything you see online. Is it true in that the brain cannot feel pain?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's okay. The shorthand is that's, that's correct, but not in the way that I think most people suspect, um, so the reason people say that is that the brain itself, like the mass of the brain, the three pound mass of the brain, does not have what are called you know nociceptors uh, the which are basically pain receptors. So you can have brain surgery and be awake, believe it or not. Um, however, and so and so the brain is relying on these nociceptors or pain receptors outside of the brain to get information about potential damage to the body, mm-hmm. right um. The brain has basically evolved to be in this very thick skull, and so the likelihood that it's going to be crushed and need to survive after that is pretty low. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, but that said, without a brain, there is no sensation of pain, um, and pain is insignificant. So, uh, you know, I say that because uh, pain is uh, chronic pain, and how we manage pain in the United States is becoming a very, very serious issue. Um, particularly in, in the context of the opioid overdose epidemic. Yes, huge um, issue. Yeah, unprecedented numbers of people are dying at a rate that's unprecedented. Um, yeah, that's, that might be the next topic I cover. But um, uh, in any case, yeah, so pain has an emotional component to it, and then of course, like a somatic, you know, an ouch component to it. Right. And both of those are encoded in the brain, but the brain itself does not
0: feel pain. That's
2: does that so make weird. sense?
0: It does make sense. It's weird. It makes sense. It's weird. So, you, yeah. and you mentioned people can have brain surgery and be awake. Like, does that actually happen? Yeah,
2: man, it happens all the time. Um, wow. And so, uh, so for example, yeah, like there are videos on YouTube uh, that I showed to a, a class of college students, and they were just like, "What?" <laughs> there, there's a there's a video of an opera singer, and gosh, this was a while ago, so I'm forgetting if it's male or female. I believe, believe male, actually. He's an opera singer, right? His life, he's trained to that, develop that kind of expertise that we were talking about to be the top of his game in this case, opera. (laughs) Um, And he relies on his ability to sing, and singing's not easy. Um, And so the neurosurgeon had him be awake, not only be awake, but actually sing during the surgery. And... To do, he, and he asked him to do that, not just to be some kind of weird neurosurgeon, although maybe he was, but <laughs> to make sure that he didn't destroy any parts of the brain that were involved in singing. So if he can continue singing while he's doing the brain operation, you can be pretty confident that you're not screwing with any parts of the brain that are you know, n- absolutely necessary to sing opera.
0: That is nuts. It's that, surreal to watch. Man. That is crazy. And that's on YouTube? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. I, mean, I am going to look that I, up. You know, it's so not my private collection it. of videos, so I'm pretty sure
2: I got it from YouTube.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, private collection. Um, so listen, <laughs> give me one fact or, or something here that um, that you feel like people should know about the brain or about neuroscience or anything. Just something that you know you want us to think about more. Um, sure, I yeah. know and your podcast is great for this, obviously, because I'm sure you're going off of things that you want people to to discuss or think about, but it's just, it's just one thought right now that you have.
2: No, I love it. Yeah, so th- this is another topic that I – actually, I covered a little bit on the podcast, but I want to go deeper. Um, so um, there is this company called DeepMind. Um, I believe it's now owned by Google, or I guess Alphabet. Um, what isn't? And,
1: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, and um, unfortunately, this company might give birth to Skynet. So oh. –
1: um,
2: <laughs> they're working on artificial intelligence and, um, you know, it's a long and super interesting, not that long, but it's an interesting story. I won't go into all the details, but they basically made a computer program that, um, you know, we've already had computer programs that can beat the best chess master, human chess masters in the world easily. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that's been true for a long time, but computer programmers and artificial intelligence type people, uh, speculated that, okay, we'll probably never be able to make well, – e- well, well, we'll either never be able to make an artificial intelligence that can beat a human at the game Go, which is this ancient Chinese board game. Um, if you've ever seen it, it's like black pebbles and white pebbles, and it's sort of this interesting big board. And it's orders of magnitude more complicated than chess. And in fact, even you know, all the Go masters, the best players of Go, they all um, – they basically say, unlike chess, we don't have specific strategies that we deploy. We sort of do it by feeling because it's just so complicated. Hmm. Um, or they say, when you know, we, if we do accomplish a, a computer program that can beat a human, the best human at Go, um, then we, that will be a significant advance towards developing artificial intelligence. Well, a couple years ago, that computer program was made. It's called AlphaGo. And oh, it beat man. Lee Sed, uh, Sedol, who was a, a South Korean Go master, the best in the in the world. He's been called the the Go master of a, of the decade, um, and the computer bro- program beat him four out of five times. Um, at oh, the man. end, Lee Sedol said, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the the person who made uh, the computer program called AlphaGo said, uh, frankly, I'm surprised that he beat AlphaGo one time. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. So not only that, right? Now they've made. A computer program that can beat that first one, AlphaGo, a hundred times in a row. What? Right? Yeah. And so the way, what's, what's interesting about all this, beyond the fact that it's a little crazy that this is all happening, is that they basically modeled the computer program after how the human brain learns by sensing error and correcting for error, and then performing a task again, and then trying to apply that corrected error to try and perform better. Right. That's just fundamental to trying to learn how to shoot a basketball, for example. Right. right. Um, and and so, uh, you know, ultimately what these what this group is doing and it's headed up by a cognitive neuroscientist, so he knows what he's doing okay. <laughs> is he's applying what we know about the human brain to artificial intelligence to make a superior intelligence, at least when it comes to go. And, uh, the story is, is even more amazing. Um, and, uh, I plan on covering it in the near future, but that is, is probably what I'd give you is that we can use what we understand about the human brain to make even, uh, uh, more superior intelligences. And, uh, we'll see where that takes us. That is,
0: that's nuts. And so something like that, like, how, how do you find out about that?
2: Well, actually, so the way I found out about that, so, so, um, there is this yearly, um, conference for, for the society for neuroscience. Um, it's actually one of the biggest, uh, conferences in the world, like over, I think last year, over 35,000 people all converged on uh, Washington, DC. And so, you know, it's 35,000 neuroscientists, or it's pretty wild from all over the world. That's secret society stuff there, man. (laughs) Well, it's not so secret. We basically (laughs) take over the city. (laughs) Uh, Like literally, like I was in a bar, I just went to a bar randomly and uh, I, you know, I'd gone up there alone or down there, I guess, uh, on my own, because I was the only person presenting for my lab. And I went to just any random bar, the coolest one I saw, you know, first, and I was literally surrounded by neuroscientists. It was like the weirdest thing. That is. Crazy. Um, but anyway, so I, I went to this thing and um, I presented my stuff. But And, and um, one of the keynote talks was from the founder of this company. His name is De, uh, Demis Hassabis. He's this very interesting guy and he basically show you know went through all the motions because he was talking to neuroscientists he made that comparison which he doesn't often make to people who you know don't necessarily or aren't even necessarily interested in the 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 um the correlations between the human brain and his artificial intelligence program
0: so when you see something like that you personally does it uh, get you excited does it scare you a little bit i mean how do you look at that you know i i kind of
2: feel I think that I probably experienced a lot of what people felt when they saw electricity for the first time or when they saw like an automobile for the first time. That's a pretty big deal.
0: What's that? That's a pretty big deal.
2: Yeah, it's like, you know, I I can understand what's going on here. Uh, I get the basics. I have no idea. There's no way that, you know, even – You know, Edison himself could have predicted that you and I would be talking over, I don't know, hundreds of miles via, you know, the internet and all kinds of crazy devices that are worrying without our, even any of our effort. Right. Um, You know, he just was at least the owner of the (laughs) patents that, uh, you know, were were associated with electricity. That's kind of how I feel like, like I can understand what's going on. I understand what they did to get there. I have no idea what this is going to look like even two decades from now.
0: Interesting. See, I was gonna, I, I was gonna ask you, like, you know, when, when, when we talk, obviously, me and you here, I'm always in, you know, impressed, and I'm always getting all kinds of information, and I'm always like, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, getting, learning all this kind of stuff, and I was gonna ask you, like, what's the last thing that you know you've learned, or you know, been told, or been taught that has made you feel that way, as far as you know, that you were surprised, like, kind of shocked at the outcome? Would that have been it then, something seeing something like that, or?
2: Well, I mean, it, it happens regularly on a on a small scale. Just because I have the the privilege of working at an institution that affords me the opportunity to like use all these new tools that most people, even in neuroscience, uh, don't get to use. You know, I happen to have a um, a mentor that really gives me free reign to be very creative and take risks, and so you know the the types of things that I'm surprised by are like wow, how did we not already know this? Right. (laughs) Like, you know, how how did we not already know that this virus that I engineered would interact with these cells in this way that was completely unpredictable? And it's like, well, 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 it's because these are these new tools. So, you know, it's not always a a mind-blowing, you know, revelation like DeepMind and Dennis Asabas's work. But, you know, pretty much every week I at least I'm surprised by my own uh, incompetence sometimes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this virus I engineered sounds scary. Yeah, I don't know exactly they're what totally you're doing sick. there, but that's not as scary.
2: Yeah, the the scary one we do work with like rabies virus and uh herpes uh simplex virus, but uh we keep those under wraps.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that's probably a good idea. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this before we wrap up. When when you do complete your PhD here soon, what's next? Or Man, is that a secret? Uh,
2: at this point, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> now, you know I, I'm I'm exploring a bunch of different avenues. The reality is, you know, academic science is extraordinarily competitive, and you know, while I, I love it and I hope to be able to continue on in it, you know, I'm considering you know like participating in things like how we decide to fund science in the country, you know, at, at a policy level, hmm. uh, at, you know, at an institution like you know the NIH or uh, NIDA or, or so on. Um, but, you know, it, it all kind of depends on how the next couple of months pan out. So uh, talk to me uh, talk to me at the end of the year. That's
0: so <laughs> crazy. That's how crazy your field is, that you're like, the next couple of months can change everything. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, so, hey, exclusive uh, Clock Dodgers Insight here. Next podcast episode, you know what it's going to be yet or you don't know? I'm debating. So it's either going to be – so we talked
2: about the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment and how we learned a lot since it was conducted. Well, Philip Zimbardo, the lead investigator of the original – uh, study put out this very elaborate response, ah, and um, so, so I'm we'll thinking maybe a, at least a part of the episode will be, you know, um, basically summarizing his his reaction, and then maybe my own reaction, depending on where he goes with it. Um, but then beyond that, you know, um, it's either going to be a combination of a bunch of new amazing, you know, discoveries that that have recently come out. Or it's going to be a dive into the um, opioid overdose epidemic and all the things that we're getting wrong about it, and part of the reason for why it's getting worse, not better, and um, maybe some of the ideas that might make it get better.
0: Yeah, that's a crazy thing. You know, I'm big into like music and um, hip hop, and that's something that's like really affected a lot of artists recently, um, and I'm sure for a while now, but like, you know, taking these drugs and then just dying from them. it seems kind of it seems really scary, man, and like the fact that a lot of these p- kids or you know a lot of them are young kids, they know what they're doing and they still take that risk. They know the risk that's involved and they still do it. It just seems really crazy, man. The opioid thing is really crazy right now. Yeah, I mean it's it's
2: remarkable. I mean. You know, it's, and and yeah, a lot of uh, uh, figures in in music. What is, I think Demi Lovato recently uh, relapsed on on opioids. Well, uh, allegedly, I guess I'm not sure. And I don't, honestly, I don't follow her music very well. And I think... (laughs) So some of the, um, like the, the popular young rappers
0: yeah, are, kid um, named Lil you Peep know, that died from it recently. And there's been a few of them since then. Right. But, yeah. X, yeah. I think he, well, he's talked about it a lot. Yeah. He's passed, not from that, but you know, he's, t- he's, it he was in that drug culture sort of as well. Um, yeah. And
2: so, you know, it's, it, it oftentimes it's, it's combinations of drugs, but, but in any case, yeah, I mean, it, you know. There's a lot of things that are unique about, you know, the opioid overdose epidemic in this country. I mean, if we think about the last drug epidemic, it, was, it, it doesn't even come close to the numbers of people who are dying yearly. Like, you know, I, I saw this article uh, um, that basically uh, in Western Pennsylvania, which is one of the areas of the country that's being hit the hardest by the uh, opioid overdose epidemic, gas stations, public gas stations. Are now changing the colors of their lights from like normal colored, you know, like white or yellowish um, to blue. And that's because in blue light, it's almost impossible to see your own veins.
0: oh wow, and,
2: yeah. And so this isn't you know, because you know people have have abused opioids for a long time now, uh, for centuries, arguably, um in public restrooms. But there's something about what's going on right now that unprecedented number numbers of people are overdosing and dying. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting story. It's a complicated story. And I think from a policy perspective and like how we're responding to it, it is probably just going to make it worse. Um, and so that's something that I'm really deeply interested in. But it's a complicated story. And I have to, you know, I want to make sure I, I prepare enough to, to speak competently about it.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different uh avenues that can, you can hit that from right like like you know obviously like you said what's happened in your life you know to get you to that point what's going on in your brain to get you to that point like so much different you know variables involved when it comes to stuff like that right so it's like it's a big task to take on
2: absolutely and i mean you know the emergence of designer drugs the emergence of hyperpotent, um you know synthetic opioids like fentanyl or you know, I shouldn't say emergence, it's been around for a long time, but it's, it's much more easily available these days. And basically, you know, uh, parts of Philadelphia are also among some of the hardest hit by the, um, by the opioid overdose epidemic. And, you know, there've been interviews of, of people, there, there's an area of Philly called, uh, Kensington and, um, you know, it's sort of notorious there. Um, and the addicts when interviewed, they'll say, yeah, I know that there's fentanyl in my heroin. In fact, I expect it. Um, Dude, and fentanyl, I mean, you know, crazy. is is just so much more potent than any other opioid that that that's regularly consumed, and it's just becoming commonplace that that is what's in people's heroin. And then beyond that, I mean, you know, just to make things even worse, fentanyl is just one of a whole family of hyperpotent synthetic opioids, many of which the DEA has never heard of. Uh, they only go by letters and numbers and nonsensical sort of gibberish and they're easily imported because they're so potent. And so, you know, this is a huge problem. And just punishing people who use opioids or punishing people who sell them, that's not going to solve the problem it never has, and it's definitely not going to solve it this time.
0: Yeah. And and, and stuff like that, right, where we talk about fentanyl and stuff like that. When those people um die from that, they're just like going to sleep basically, right? It's just like a like they don't they're not conscious of the fact that it's happening, right? You know, it, it sort of
2: depends, but but yeah, largely speaking, when somebody over uh, dies for, from an overdose of an opioid, basically what happens is that generally they'll go unconscious, um, and this is not you know off, they oftentimes go unconscious when they're not overdosing. They you know uh, this is sort of informally referred to as nodding. Um, they sort of come in and out of of consciousness, um, oftentimes having very elaborate dreams. By the way, while while they're um, asleep or unconscious, but when it comes to an overdose, what happens is that they go unconscious and then. Because of the unique physiology, because of what happens when um, the receptors that are bound by opioids, what happens when they're bound, they it can become impossible for them to breathe. And so they die of respiratory failure while they're unconscious. Um, and of course, that can be very effectively reversed by a, a drug called uh, Narcan, um, which is becoming more and more common. So that that is a good sign um, where more police officers have it. Um, more like, in some cases, librarians are being trained to to um, administer Narcan. Wow, it's it's scary times, yeah, uh, frankly. It, and
0: and it is because I also feel like you know, again, if you pay close attention to you know hip hop culture or music culture, um, it's you know, it's become like a cool thing, you know, it's become like the thing, like, at once upon a time, rappers or artists talked about it, and like, now they're actually like doing it, like, to an extreme level, even, you know, recently, this guy, uh, he's really popular on Instagram, his name is Boonk, Gang, and um, he was doing an interview, and when he got off from the interview, he like, almost collapsed, and like, hit his head on the wall, and all this kind of stuff, and people were like, oh, this guy's on crazy drugs, like, what's going on, you know, and he actually like, sent out a tweet that said, I do drugs because I feel alone, when I'm high, I feel nothing, when I'm sober, I feel everything, And I feel like, you know, it's dangerous, you know, it's a dangerous territory that we're getting into, especially kids these days with this culture that's, you know, coming out of this drug culture. Um, That's crazy stuff, man.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, people have done these drugs for, you know, that's why I think it's so complicated because people did these drugs for a long time, or at least let's say they did opioids. Like I remember, you know, there was like purple drink, there was scissor, there was, you know, lean, you know, people talked about, you know, this stuff in the past. I I think that there's something unique about which uh, which specific opioids are being consumed? It's no longer just codeine, right. which is basically the opioid that was in all the things I just said. Um, <laughs> it's not even hydrocodone and Vicodin, right? Um, which I think a pill of Vicodin or maybe Valium was on the cover of like an Eminem album.
0: Yeah, it
2: was. Um, yeah. yeah, and so now it's like it's like these um, these you know gray market drugs like etizolam or um, or fentanyl, right? Or, or carfentanyl you know things that you can basically order on the internet and it's it's basically impossible to track and prevent from being imported and so you know we i think and and the you know why is it that more people are doing them are more people doing them or did we just not track it very effectively in the past you know that all is very complicated but for me what i think is very important is that we need to address this issue on its own terms and recognize that We need new strategies to deal with this because there's no signs that things are getting better. In fact, the science suggests things are getting worse.
0: Man, oh man, scary, Ian. Listen, yeah, listen. (laughs) We are we have gone pretty deep and sometimes dark on this episode. (laughs) Yeah, Um, sorry, man. I didn't need to. No, no, no. It's totally fine. Marshmallows again. That's just how marshmallows. Yeah. (laughs) Listen to that episode uh, that you did last to to lift your spirits. Um, Give us a recommendation, Ian. You know, I always like to do this. Anything, it can be an item, it could be a mentality, a piece of knowledge, advice, whatever you want, just a recommendation for us here.
2: Man, okay, so recently, so I, I was injured for a pretty long time. I, I messed up my, my, my trapezius muscle, it's like the muscle that goes along the side of your neck, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, you know, doing shrugs, and I was using a uh, the straps, like, as though I was like going to be some kind of bodybuilder or something, <laughs> and I like ruined it, and um, I was injured for a really long time, and um, for months, and... I sort of slowly forgot how important it was, at least for me, to do that kind of thing, to like either exercise in some way, to become physically exhausted on a somewhat regular basis. And so recently, actually, like just a week ago, I was able to get back in the gym and, like, oh my God, it's like, I remember now, like, why that was so important. It totally changes how I feel. And so I don't know if everybody's like me in that way, but. Um, I certainly forgot how important it was and, um, I think I underestimated how important it was and maybe other, more people should consider, you know, if you feel like crap for whatever reason, just give
0: it a shot. You never know. I 100% agree with you, man. I just started, you know, working out like a couple of weeks ago, more, cause more for, you know, I got to lose some weight, man. I got a lot to go here. But um, <laughs> I agree with you, man. It's like you, you would think like a lot of times people make excuses like, well, how can I find time? I'm, I'm already so tired. Dah, dah, dah. But like when you come out of the gym in some weird way, you have more energy than when you went in in some weird way. It's like a mental, I don't know if it's a mental thing or what it is, but like you do feel way better leaving than you would think. I'm going to go in here. I'm going to hurt myself. It's going to be exhausting, but you don't come out feeling that way. It's strange. I mean, I I went to the gym
2: before we started chatting.
0: (laughs) So did I. So did I. We're both high (laughs) off of fitness right now. (laughs) Listen, tell the listeners where they can find you, social media, best ways to contact you, all that kind of good stuff.
2: Sure. So the podcast is called wired to be weird and it's on iTunes and stitcher and, uh, you know, all, all, a bunch of the other ones. I think it's on Google play now. Um, and then, uh, I am my favorite. The only social media now that I really use is Twitter. Um, Love it or hate it, I love Twitter. Me too, (laughs) me too. And so I'm at underscore anthropoid. um, And uh, you can catch all the other stuff apart from the podcast that I do there.
0: Perfect, perfect. I appreciate it again as always, Ian, man. I always appreciate you coming on here. I have to go back and study all this now and dig deeper. Now you got me worried (laughs) about Skynet and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) But I do, again, I appreciate your time. Uh, Like I said, you're one of my favorite guests to have on. There's no question. And I always look forward to our chat. So thank you again, man.
2: My pleasure as always.
0: Have a good night, Ian. You too. What did I tell you? My boy Ian came through with the knowledge. I swear I feel smarter after talking to this guy. I swear I use this outside in conversations like I'm a neuroscientist. Thank you, Ian. I appreciate the gems, man. Again, I know we talked about some stuff that sounded scary. We talked about some real positive stuff. But honestly, there's a lot of hope and with guys like him, you know, putting in the work to make things better, whether right? whether it's, you know, to find cures, whether it's to find, um, you know, better ways to think or to do things, um, whether it's just, you know, for psychology purposes, just all, all these different things. They What he's doing is important, you know, and it's important to support people like that and to support the work that those kind of guys put in. So big shout out to Ian again uh, and shout out for lending his time to us. We, we mentioned if you want to follow him on on, on Twitter at underscore anthropoid. Um, Definitely do that. Again, support his podcast. It's a lot of fun. If you're ever looking for a podcast, it's like, you know, fun, but it's educational and you feel like you're coming away with some, some kind of substance from it. um, And you, and you want to learn some interesting things. It's a, it's a perfect podcast for that. Um, So shout out to, you know, Ian for that as well. Uh, guys, I, again, want to thank you for listening to the clock Dodgers podcast. As I mentioned before, and every other time, um, we don't ask for anything here. Everything is free. That's how it's, that's how it always should be. Um, all we ever ask if you can in return, just subscribe or share the podcast with somebody who you think may enjoy it. Um, feel free to leave a review. Uh, whatever you want to do, just any of these little things that really help push the message and push the brand and push what we're trying to do. Because the bigger we get, the more people we get involved, the more, you know, different guests we can have on, and the more we can put into this, and the more we can give back. Um, so that's really important to me and what we're doing. Again, guys, follow us on social media. All social media is at Clock Dodgers. Super easy to find us. Um, and again, I like when you guys follow because, um, I always follow back. Number one, number two, I like to share stuff that you guys are doing. Um, you know, support what you guys are doing. And the only way to do that is advice if I, if I could see it. So follow so we can do that. Um, if you know anybody that you'd like to be a guest on the pod that you think would be a good guest on the podcast or any kind of topics you'd like us to get to, um, definitely, uh, DM that to me or just tweet at me, email, whatever, um, whatever works for you, uh, is fine. Uh, you can actually email to anything about the podcast. You can email, uh, Contact at clockdodgers.com. Contact at clockdodgers.com. And if you do that, anything about the podcast, just send it there. Uh, or anything you want to talk about at all. <laughs> you want me to have a conversation, just a regular conversation? We could do that too. It's no big deal. Not too busy. You just, just hit me up and we could talk. Um, but shout out to everybody who's listening. Shout out to everybody who's been a part of this from day one to today. Shout out to all of you. Um, Shout out to anybody who's ever listened to an episode, ever read an article, ever bought a t-shirt or wristband, um, joined a charity contest that we do, um, a- anything at all. Shout out to anyone who's um, sent their music in to be played on the show. Shout out to everybody who's contributed in any way at all. Even if you just listen, even if you just share, even if I don't even know you're there, but you're listening, thank you. That That means the world to me. Um, and thank you again to all the guests who have come on and made this stuff happen. Um, you guys know how we do here. Every time we have a guest on and we have one of these great episodes, we send you off with a song, right? And we've had all kinds of artists on here, um, rappers, singers, from all kinds of styles of, of music, uh, and especially different kind of style of rap uh, and, and singers, all this really great music that I get. Um, and, you know, that ain't stopping anytime soon. So... Shout out to the artist that we're closing this episode out with, which is V-Renee, and she's a singer. Being that this is an episode that we talked a lot about the brain and mental and psychology, if you're going through it right now in a relationship, V-Renee has a song for you. Don't get all emotional now, because this song will bring it out of you. Um, This is a really good song by V-Renee. It's called Monsoon, and again, she's a super talented singer, um... I wanted to send, out, send it out on this song. I feel like it was a good vibe uh, to close this thing out on, to relax our minds. We've just taken a lot of information in. Um, so let's go ahead and use this um, to get back, to soothe ourselves, to get our mind right. Um, if you are an artist and you're listening, or if you are friends with an artist, you manage an artist, your family with an artist, any kind of music, and you think they're talented, and you want us to play their song on the, new half, on, on the uh, no half on the no halftime on the clock Dodgers podcast? Here I am saying no halftime podcast because I do another podcast called No Halftime for those who who enjoy sports diehard sport fans. You want to subscribe to the No Halftime podcast? But back to what I was saying. If you know someone who's super talented, uh, a musician, a producer, it doesn't even have to be lyrics. It doesn't have to be music. It, I mean, it doesn't have to be music with lyrics. If you if you know someone who's a dope producer, I'll play their beat in this episode. It ain't no biggie. Let's make it happen. You know what I'm saying? So if you know someone talented, send them my way or send me their work, uh, whatever it is. And, and, and we'll talk about it. We'll chop it up and see if we can make that happen. Um, but again, shout out to V. Renee on this song. Um, super talented singer. Let me give you her Twitter handle, too, just so you guys can follow her. Another one with an underscore in the front. <laughs> you guys killed me with these underscores. It's at underscore. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that's just actually I think it's two underscores. So at underscore underscore v renee which is the letter v and then r e n e e uh so just look her up follow her um she has other music you definitely want to check it all out uh, on soundcloud you can check her out right there uh big shout out to her and again i appreciate good music i know you guys appreciate good music so send it my way Or even if you just hear an artist's music and you really like it and you just want to send me their name, and I'll contact them. I'm not trying to make you put into all that work if you don't want to. Just send me their name, and I'll check them out. Um, But again, guys, thank you for everything. I love you guys. This is Clock Dodger. We're family. As always, be kind, be great, keep dodging.
1: But it's worth really going through baby it's a no